In the back of my mind, Christian life was a treadmill. We just slowly turn the treadmill up. Crisis is not our enemy. In fact, nothing good happens without crisis. We see people living in a kind of way that we would like to follow, charting a kind of route. I guess I'd gone from worshipping the waves that God made to worshipping the God who made the waves, and surely that's got to be so much more inspiring. This week, we're diving into a question, who does not want to be an Australian surfer? Some of our podcasts we do, we have older men on to share a little bit about their stories and their journeys. And Brett Davis is one of those men that we had on. Brett founded the Christian Surfers International Organization um, way back when. And we got to hear a little bit about his story. There's really nothing like an example, actually. There's nothing like a story to clarify some of the issues at stake in the development of the masculine heart, and even to provide some waypoints and some signposts in our own journey. So, got a killer conversation here for you with our new favorite Australian, Brett Davis. Now, a heads up, we did give Blaine one of those tin cans connected to a rope connected to the recording device. So he sounds uh, a little off in this audio, but that's because we were Skyping Brett in from the other side of the world. So don't let that get to you. Um, the podcast is a killer recording. Brett, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We're really excited to hear about your story and your journey and just kind of all the twists and turns it took. So thanks for taking some time today to be with us. Oh, no worries, Sam. It's great to be here. So I know that your role these days with Christian Surfers International is a little bit different than what it's been in the past. I mean, you you did found this organization and that feels like starting at the at the some of the later chapters of the book, but I'd love to to start at some of the earlier ones, to start back before we had this story of your life unfolding, like back before you knew the answers, back before you had the kids and you had the <laughs> wife and you had the everything. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm making an assumption here that you sort of got it all figured out as the assumption that I make for most older men in my life, uh, which you can correct me there if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. But um, for sure, what, what was your 20s like? What was kind of going on in your world and, and what, what felt like massive things that you need to make decisions around? Yeah, sure, Sam. Um, I think probably the most, you know, preceding 20s is always teens. And I didn't come from a Christian upbringing at all and had made a deal with God that when I was old and going to die, then I'd catch up with him. But I was going surfing. (laughs) That was the most exciting thing. It was the coolest thing to be living in Sydney in Australia in the late 70s. And surfing was very countercultural, a long way from the church. Um, That suited me. And I gave my life to surfing. In fact, I gave my whole identity to surfing. Uh, But God has a way of catching up with you. (laughs) And uh, I was 16 years old when I'd actually met my first Christian who was a surfer, which staggered me that you could be those two things in one body. And um, that was amazing. And a couple of years later, we started this thing called Christian Surfers because we were now marginalized from the surf community because we become Christians and sort of marginalized from the church community because we were surfers. So we created this little group which grew into a mission. And by the time I'd reached my 20s, there was probably two very significant things that had taken place. One was that we had stepped out 
from sort of living in our own homes, uh, you, typically with our parents, to a open mission house in Cronulla. So we were living in community, but a community on mission. That was a massive step and uh, had to come to terms with lots of issues, being in leadership, being very young, pioneering my job as a high school teacher, then having a house full of teenagers at the beach at Cronulla. So that, that was big. And I think the other one was I made a massive step when I was 23 of just an ongoing series of surrenders to where I uh, surrendered my career as a teacher to step out and become the founding national director at age 23, which is uh, sounds pretty young and uh, I was yeah, full, of bravado, <laughs> full of bravado and confidence that uh, we we're just going to go for it with God and Jesus could do anything and we we naively believe that, faithfully believe that, and, and he did. He did. So um, those are a couple of really significant things in my early 20s. Um, 26, a woman come along and I get married, so there's another, okay. another one there. All of that is staggering. So I want to wind <laughs> back and it is, just go to your, in your teens and start with two things happened that you just kind of went over quickly, the attraction to surfing, and then somewhere in there something happened that you became attracted to Christianity. So can we wind back and look at those again? You mentioned that surfing was countercultural. Was that the only thing or that attracted you to surfing or what was there that drew you into that community? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Probably two things. One is the sheer adventure of surfing, just being encapsulated, engulfed by the ocean, just the power of the waves, the whole appeal of that. Um, It's just an amazing sport. It actually becomes more than a sport, becomes a lifestyle and, and then actually becomes an identity. But the sheer adventuresome um, aspect of surfing appealed to me. The other one probably wasn't as noble as chicks, you know, girls. The, the surfers were the ones who got the girls in my high school. And uh, I'm thinking, man, like I had the worst reputation uh, a, a kid could have had at 13, 14. You know, I was in all the top classes at school, got on well with my parents and teachers, didn't drink, smoke, take drugs, have a girlfriend. It was like the worst reputation you could have as a guy. And uh, I'm thinking surfing is the thing that's going to change my image, you know, and make me popular. So adventure and popularity were probably the two things that drove me. Uh, so I'm a little bit naive as to all of the flora and fauna of Australia. But I do know that there are saltwater crocodiles and sharks. And uh, I mean, like, sure, there's bears here in the wilderness, but you're going to go surfing. I, I just, what comes to mind is a little bit of a, I don't know, a minefield to even jump in the water. Am I totally naive in this? It's just. Yeah, you're speaking like a. Uh, a middle American. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but but I like honestly, you know, statistically, you know, the most dangerous thing I do in surfing is the drive to the beach. Um, but still, there's nonetheless there's um, and especially this last year, we've had a horrendous run of shark incidents and the awareness is running pretty rife. But um, you know, it's, sharks uh, were never things that were a serious consideration. You got to remember most. Australians live within a short drive to a surfable beach. So I grew up at the beach like most Australian families in the ocean from three or four years of age. 
little uh, belly boards and you make your progression body surfing and it's just part of Australian culture. So not a big issue at all. I mean, There's way more dangerous things on land with snakes and spiders. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, in the same sentence you said, <laughs> it's not very dangerous and then it's been a horrendous string of events this year. So I, <laughs> I love it. I love that there's that, that piece that, I mean, you're admitting of this straight-laced kid who's who's needing adventure and wanting that, which just feels... I mean, very true and very uh, timely at that time of life. I'm, I'm curious where things like where did the where did the Jesus part come in? Because that's that's pretty yeah, out there. Yeah, it is. Um, like I said, I took my two uh, younger brothers along to a Sunday school class. My parents gave me twenty cents to put in the plate. That was a babysitting service, an Anglican babysitting service. My parents never went to church, but sent us along so they could spend Sunday mornings just sleeping in and hanging out at home without us. It was cheap babysitting, but I did get to hear a bunch of Jesus stories. I was invited by a family across the road to a a boys club at a little Baptist church when I was eight years old, and I loved that. I enjoyed the Jesus stories at the end of that. So there was a, a vague awareness but, uh, you know, you hit high school, there's all these other pressures. And uh, as I said, um, I, I chose surfing. I figured for, for surfing to come, God had to go. Uh, those two worlds couldn't coexist. And so um, it was two years, you know, two years into that surfing experience that I met my friend Jeff, who was just a regular guy in my high school who became friends in our group. And he was the weird Jesus guy. I mean... All of the Christians I knew and the Christianity and church culture I knew was pretty dull and boring, but this guy was just a vibrant surfer and a vibrant Christian, and there was something compelling about that combination. Hmm. Fascinating. So when you say vibrant specifically, can you remember what he had that was lacking in a culture that could be described as vibrant or at least very alluring. Were there specific differences that stood out to you in that lifestyle versus what this friend had? Mm, yeah, good question. Uh, for, so for sure, you know, he shared some of the vibrancy about the physical activity of surfing. The thing I quickly came to see that many of the surfers I was aspiring to be like were great surfers, but they're lousy people. You know, they're, they're drug abusing, they're, they're women abusing, they're self-absorbed. Good surfers, bad people. But here's a guy who's a great surfer, but he's a great person. He had the ability to do what he knew was right. He had conviction of character, had a sense of purpose and direction, which he would tell us was, I don't know, you won't believe this, but he would tell us it was because he had a personal relationship with Jesus. Can you believe it? We didn't. We didn't. And he got tested and pushed pretty hard by, um, you know, our peer group of high school and and never caved. And that that was impressive. Hmm. I love it. Was there a what made you take the leap then? Was it that? Was it that allure to be that kind of person yourself? Or was it the stories? Was there something in your life that you said, this isn't working? I'm curious what made you shift out of a culture that, I don't know, it's pretty self-satisfied. Yes, yes. yes. And, and life was good. Like, you know, I'm 17 years old. 
I've still managed to stay in the top classes at school, getting on with my parents, teachers, no drug or alcohol problems, still too scared of girls to have any sex hang-ups. I'm, I'm surfing well. My, uh, I figured I had the system beat. But, you know, deep down, I already was realizing that firstly, some of those surfers I was aspiring to be like were not necessarily great people. And even the very act of surfing, which I was building my satisfaction around, just a switch of the wind, a change of the tide, a couple of extra people paddle out, and it's gone. It's gone. And uh, I sensed there was something lacking in that. I was coming to the end of high school, man. I, I couldn't even maintain a push bike, let alone think how am I going to how am I going to get a job and maintain a uh, a wife and a family and a career? Uh, how good would it be to have God involved as a more secure foundation? So I think that was the emptiness. It wasn't so much a conviction of sin as a conviction of truth and wanting a more secure foundation, which I could see even at a young age, surfing wasn't going to do it. Mm. And yet when you stepped into it, there wasn't the, I don't know, the need to leave something that you knew to be good and beautiful and fun and adventurous behind. You wanted to bring that along with you and, and form a community around it. Like, what were you mm. thinking there? Yeah, well, yes and no. Um, like I said, when I became a surfer, I figured, well, for surfing to come, God had to go. <laughs> so then I become this Christian. He conned me to go to church with two things I didn't believe. Firstly, that uh, the minister of the church would let us leave our surfboards there so we didn't have to carry them on the train. I was four stops from uh, Cronulla Beach. And secondly, he told me there were good-looking girls there. So neither of those things could possibly be true. So I, I get to church and I'm surprised when the minister offers uh, to house my surfboard. And there's some good-looking girls there, and my third surprise was hearing this message of Jesus again, which resonated deep in my heart. And so I finally make my surrender. I wrestled for months, you know. I was too cool to be a Christian. I was, this didn't fit with my surfing, with my new friends, with my life, but there was this, this pressing of Jesus saying, well, you know, you've told me, you do it later, you do it later. But saying later is the same as saying no. Delayed obedience is disobedience, and I became convicted of that. So I made my surrender, sort of. <laughs> but I can tell you now, in my first year as this new Christian, I was like, there's two kinds of surfers. There's people who've got the image of surfing. They've got the board. They know the, the language. They wear the clothes. They've got the image. They can talk the talk but they don't actually really paddle out uh, and I was absolutely committed to be an authentic surfer and to push the boundaries of that but I discovered that as a Christian I was more more that kind of Christian I was still hesitant I was still I had a bible that I didn't read I listened to people pray and I never prayed and I was terrified that anyone would find out I was a Christian um, so God really had to confront me when I was 18 years old, Brett, you know, you said to me when you were 13, 14, I got to go for surfing to come. Now I'm telling you that, uh, maybe your surfing has got to go for me to come truly. And I had to surrender my surfing totally and said to God, I will never surf again. If you don't want me to, I could see that surfing was such a stronghold such a an idol, such so much my identity, it was blocking that. So I actually gave up surfing and gave up surfing when I was 18. 
well, I'm impressed by two things. First, that you actually handed over the identity of surfing. The second is that from the beginning, it actually sounds like you were hearing the voice of God. Was that present from day one? Or can you remember a moment when conversation with God came online? Mm. Good question. Um, I, by nature, am a fairly analytical, cerebral kind of person. I definitely wouldn't say I'm particularly mystical. My upbringing was in very conservative evangelical churches. So uh, I don't know how good I could hear the voice of God in the sense that I might refer to it now or what you might be referring to. All I knew at such a young age was there was conviction. There was conviction and uh, it was quite cognitive more than mystical, Uh, but it was just a straight plain conviction. Um, So that was definitely played into it. And ironically, after surrendering that surfing, two weeks later, my friend who'd led me to Christ came and said, look, I've got this crazy idea that we could start a Christian surfer group. And I had this overwhelming conviction that after I'd surrendered my surfing to God, he was giving it back. But just uh, remember who it belonged to. Uh, That was the big turnaround. Yeah, I love that part of the story that there's this, uh, you're not trying to drag it in that you once, I mean, it was only a couple of weeks and that might not be the case in other people's stories. It might be longer. Mm, yeah. Um, oh man, two, two weeks without a service is a long time when you're 18. <laughs> fair point. Uh, but I think when most people think of surfing communities, I don't know, like it's bungalows, it's grass huts, it's bronze skin. You know, you don't think of surfing communities and then throw in the, the Christian aspect. What were you guys envisioning when, uh, you know, just let's rally the few of us who are both together? And what was the motivation behind it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's it's 1977, you know, we're in our final year of high school and we start our little Christian surfer group. And as far as I'm aware, there's five Christian surfers in the whole world. <laughs> we're meeting around my mum's dining room, sort of opening the Bible, talking, and uh, we got little brothers and friends of little brothers. There's a few stray kids who are surfing their way out of the back door of church, and yeah, we're just rallying this ragtag bunch of people together, and we've probably taught a bunch of heresy and just did our best to what does it make sense to be a Christian, to be a surfer? To So the group was called Christian Surfers Fellowship, which was an idea of a fellowship of Christians who surfed. And within 18 months, we dropped the word fellowship because we realized it was actually a mission. There was We just had so many you know, much influence amongst young guys who uh, were not Christians at all. So uh, it definitely transitioned from a fellowship to a mission. But in the midst of that, it created a great sense of community and identity within that surfing community itself. I love the pretty quick shift there from almost like a fraternity of like, let's get together and let's make sure that we can kind of survive as both of these identities. That's it. It was survival in many ways. (laughs) And then then it's so quickly, well, I don't know how quickly, but your shift then to hey, we're already in this world. We're already interacting with these guys and girls who are doing this with us. You've been talking about before that you were terrified of people finding out that you were a Christian and now all of a sudden you're going to like be out in the waves and bring up our Lord and Savior, mm. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 
that's the thing. I was I was a surfing evangelist. I mean, I told everybody how good surfing was. You get into this and everything else, unashamed, bold, because it is just so good. And so uh, when finally I'm uh, willing to give my life to Jesus and again experience how good He is, it was just a transition of uh, I guess I'd gone from worshiping the waves that God made to worshiping the God who made the waves. And surely that's got to be so much more inspiring and worthwhile. Yeah. So the other thing I notice is that is so indicative of stories or so emblematic of stories that God gets involved in is first you kind of think that what this is, is a few friends in a similar stage of life who are going to share some life together and then you quickly realize that as soon as you are doing that, you are going to be almost compelled into mission and something that's going to be dangerous and demanding. What did it look like in the beginning? Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, we were just so young and uh, people often ask me, you know, what was your vision for Christian surfers and that? And I said, man, my vision for Christian surfers was next Monday night. Like, what are we going to do next Monday, you know? What are we going to do for these kids? What are we going to talk about? And, you know, and we were just careering along, taking people surfing, surf camps. We would um, shoot photos and do a slideshow with a projector, uh, you know, on a sheet in the backyard. There'd be a barbecue. We'd open the Bible and we were unashamed and bold uh, to do so. But there was something... Uh, particularly when we took a step. And for, I'll be honest, and for the first four years, and I was a very reluctant leader, uh, we never had more than a dozen people would come to this weekly meeting. Uh, and then we took that bold step and felt compelled to open up this house at the beach at Cronulla, and that 12 kids became 20, then 40, then 60, then 100. And our weekly meetings would have up to a hundred teenage boys at them, and, uh, and by that stage, you know, we're in our early twenties, twenty-one, twenty-two, and um, it's it's wild, just wild. All the issues that go on with uh, teenagers living in a house with uh, one pub across the road and a nightclub on the other corner with the most prominent house at Cronulla, and everybody knew it as the Christian Surfers House. Great times. Wild. <laughs> Thinking, I mean, Seriously. that you were in your early 20s and you started a house. And most people would say, like, why are you going to plant it right there? What are you thinking? You're going to just get all these kids in this house together? You must be mad. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's more. I mean, the weekends, it's just wildly drunk either corner of us. We had everything from demon-possessed people to rape victims to violent assaults to all sorts of crazy people passing through that house. And yeah, that was, and we're just fumbling our way along in quite a conservative middle-class church. And we will come from all different backgrounds eventually. So um, get exposed to Pentecostalism, the charismatic renewal movement was sweeping through mainstream churches. Then it was, it was a pretty wild time bit of fun time in the midst of that and uh, putting on open-air outreaches, having our Christian surfer sticker on our board, publishing evangelistic surfing comics where we rewrote Jesus' parables in Tracks magazine. Um, 
and that was costing us, you know, a week's wages just to put that in every month. There was lots of stuff that uh, went down in the in those uh, those years. Good time. Yeah. So you keep saying, "I love good time." It feels like so much is encapsulated in that phrase. I'd love to know if someone were to come to you and were to say, "Hey, I'm thinking of doing a house outreach." And you only have the opportunity to give this person a few pieces of advice, a few lessons learned. What would you say some of the core lessons were of the first few years doing the house? Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, firstly, I'll be saying, yes, go for it. Like, how, how good is that? There is something incredible in um, opening your life in a real way to people. Certainly, I'd say that you know any any mission, any venture in life, it's not as good as the location of that house or the makeup of the house. It's only as good as the teamwork. It's only as good as the community of people who make up those running the house. So, I definitely say you got to work hard being an honest, true band of brothers together in that. And that was twofold. You have to walk close with Jesus in dependency on him and secondly, walk close with each other. And then the third thing I'd say is you just love people. Just just love them boldly, extravagantly. Yeah, last one I'd say is just keep it a bit wild. Keep it a bit wild. It's going to be messy and edgy. Just go for the ride and great, great time for that. Yeah, I definitely hear that in the way that you're talking about this. Almost nostalgic, the the slide, the projector, the sheet in the backyard, the barbecues, it being good times, but a little bit hectic and just that, that release of needing to control everything. That's really good. It's it's definitely not say my personality type. I know that I'm more prone to being like, okay, how do I control all of this? How do I make sure none of these guys go get in trouble? And how do I make sure that like we just arrange the perfect, you know, batten down the hatches and it's like a seamless experience and i think well there's something lost in that there is and you and you can't especially if you're going to be authentic in your community i mean if you a lot of people just do ministry to the community but if you're going to do ministry in the community it's a very different posture and a very different level of engagement Mm, say more so, you know, doing ministry to the community, and I remember there was probably times that we had our Christian Surface shirts, we had our Christian Surface club and our Christian Surface stickers, and we would turn up at professional surf contests and stuff and sort of throw tracks at people, you know. <laughs> but then there was a big transition when, um, you know, we joined the Secular Board Rider Club. I ended up on the committee you're just associating closer and closer with messy people and by association can even be misunderstood by the church and the rest. I remember having a, it sounds innocent enough, but uh, we had a commando night. It was a team building exercise and told all the kids to turn up in dressed in black and we had charcoal for their faces and some of them had balaclavas. We were in a park. One of the checkpoints was to go into a store and, We'd arrange with the shop owner. They had to purchase just a little treat from him and then go on to the next checkpoint. Well, after we rounded them all up at the end for the little Bible talk, I could hear these police sirens. There was one, two, three, five, and they all came careering into this park where I had a group of about 40 teenage boys getting ready for the Bible talk. 
and we get surrounded by these police officers. And um, they've been had a report that there was an armed robbery in progress at this store from the neighborhood watch center. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so you're like, ah. Oh. And, you know, the police officers, like, just giving us such a hard time. And when they'd all left, one car was left at the darkened window rolled down and there's this young guy who used to be in Christian surfers going, man, I knew it was you guys, but I wasn't telling anyone that I knew you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love it. Yeah. Well, stuff like that, you know, we, we've been caught by the police jumping in the blowhole at Kiama and so you end up doing things which are a little reckless with reckless kids. They're not always neat and tidy, you know. Oh my gosh. So note to self, don't dress up like ninjas and uh, run around town. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Actually, with my high school Bible study, we had this thing that we thought was awesome, which was like taking road signs and then breaking into our friends' houses at night and planting them. And then one time, like we ran into, you know, my dad almost pulling a gun on high schoolers at my house. So that was the end of that idea. But <laughs> It really sounds awesome to be a commando. Oh my gosh. I So Brett, I, I'm curious, like w- during all of that, I can feel like the momentum, the excitement, the permission to kind of just figure things out and some things work and some things don't. And I love the, I love just the, the freedom of that. When was the moment for you or was there a moment somewhere in that journey that you thought like, okay, this could be, this is working or I'm, I'm really loving this particular part or like, let's, let's see if we can reach more people because you, you guys didn't just stop with yeah. Christian surfers. Yeah. Well, um, there's a series of stages, our little local group in Cronulla. Once we started publishing in, uh, the secular surfing magazines, we were getting correspondence from other people who wanted to do a similar thing or had started a similar thing. This is pre-internet, okay, so you had to get a letter in the mail, then write a letter back to people. My gosh, how did you communicate so slowly? Yeah, how do you communicate? But I remember sitting around the kitchen table in that open house and we had this idea, we we should get everyone together. Let's have a national conference of Christian surfers. Well, it was an oxymoron, like Christian surfers sounded like an oxymoron for a lot of people, but a national conference sounded so organized and official, but um, we did that in 1983 and that just launched us from just that rather than being a bunch of individual groups, we could band together and be more than the sum of our individual parts as a national movement to the Australian surfing community. And that expanded as we discovered other similar groups in New Zealand and then contacts from the UK and the United States. And in 93, we had our first international conference. Again, a crazy idea of getting people together. Could could it be that we could be a force internationally? Um, so that was another massive step. Uh, and every time I felt like I would get comfortable, God just pushed, pushed us into the next realm, pushed us to move on to the next thing. So, you know, resigning from my job and security of that to become the founding Australian director, then going back to a college, getting married and taking a big step to go back into the ministry again, but married with a mortgage and a pregnant wife thinking, oh my goodness, how's all this going to happen? Like, this is like grown up world now, you know? 
And then taking my wife and an 18-month-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and we lived around the world for one year to transition from the national role to the international role. And uh, even right now, I've just handed over that role and now pioneering a global action sports ministry network and seeking to help people find their sense of calling to combine their passion with God's purposes and validate that that's the way you've been shaped, even in the world of action sports, of snowboarding, rock climbing, mountain biking. God's in that, you know. So are you saying that if I get comfortable and find myself a nice little nook of the world, that probably isn't going to last for super long? <laughs> I, uh, I think you're uh, far too small a thing to live for, and uh, God's going to... He's going to stretch us. If we're open, he will always He will always stretch us. We're called to live by faith, and as soon as we get too comfortable, have it all sorted, I think God's way is to unsettle us and keep stretching us. Evidently, because you were a high school teacher first, right? Yes. And then you left that, and then you mentioned you went back to school is that right? Mm-hmm. What did That's you right. go back, I back for? To, I went back. I I, uh, I did three years as the founding Australian director. After those three years, I, I got married in the last year. And uh, I really looked at thought, you know what? I've done everything you could possibly do in Christian service. It's time to hand it over to the young guys. I was 26 and thinking I'm getting a bit old here. And uh, it was also time to get a real, like, get a real job, you know go to Bible college and get a real ministry. This Christian surfer thing is a kid thing, you know. So I, I went back teaching to consolidate my finances with my wife and we had decided there were certain things we wanted to do before we had children and one of them was to go to a Bible college and we went together and, yeah, just expected we'd get some call to the overseas mission field. That was real ministry, you know. And it never came, never came. And uh, just when I thought it was safe to go back in the water, Christian surfers came back around and the guy who replaced me bailed after 12 months and the ship was adrift and uh, they approached me asking, would we consider coming back, which was quite a shock because I thought, no, that's what I did when I was a kid, you know. This is trying to grow up and get a grown-up job, you know. <laughs> right now you're 28. Yes, by that stage, I'm. Uh, I've been to college. I'm now 29, so there was a three-year gap from 26 to 29. But oh, it's a very different ball game now because I'm married. I've decided to build my own home, and uh, we're starting a family. So there's a lot more at stake. And I feel can't relate at all. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely don't Who? have a ten-month-old. Sam has a mortgage. I don't have a mortgage. Not yet. Um, but returning to the girl, she talked a little bit about how she came into the story, and then what it was that launched you into a marriage. <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, wow. Well, Gillian had. Uh, been part of the same church I was at, Baptist Church. She was uh, three years younger, so she was in a younger youth group and I was in a slightly older young adults group. So we were aware of each other. We were attending the same university and I remember pointing her out to some other Christian guys saying, 
And there's that girl, Gillian. I said, she'll make a great wife for someone in full-time Christian ministry one day. <laughs> Giving them the I'm heads sorry, up, you stop. know. Hang on. Wait a minute. <laughs> what, what did you mean when you said that? Yeah. I'm thinking this woman, and she was involved with Christian Surface. She was running the girls' ministry that slowly emerged. And um, she had all the traits of a highly committed Highly committed Christian girl. She was school captain of a high school. She'd been a world champion water skier. She was popular, talented. Therefore, she was totally out of my league. So I was happy to point her out to other people, but there's no way that I'd ever be uh, eligible to get anywhere near her. She was untouchable, never had a boyfriend, was just a very focused, successful uh, young woman. So, um, I was happy to point her out to others, but never thought I would end up with her. So where did the shift come? (laughs) Um, We'd become quite good friends. And I remember clearly my last year of university and we all had to do uh, a practical thesis project. And I had some issues with that. I desperately just wanted to talk to someone personally. And she was just so... So wanted to talk to her and I push it back. You know, you, you pick up the telephone, dial the number and then put it down again before she answers thinking, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're just going to be rejected. And I remember finally mustering up the courage to call her and she asked how I was. And I said, not doing too well. She said, would you like to come over? And I said, yes. And, uh, was just absolutely overwhelmed by this woman until finally, a couple of weeks later, after seeing her a number of times, I had to tell her that, uh, okay, I did it the cowardly way. I said to her, I know a guy who really likes this girl, but he's not sure if she likes him. What do you think he should do? I've got a friend, yeah. hypothetically. Yeah, I've got a friend, say. you know, who's got an issue here, you know. Not me, not and me. And she just, <laughs> she says in typical form, he should just come straight out and tell her. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, okay. So I say to her, well, I'm the guy. And she's like, really? You like a girl? And I'll go, yep, and you're the girl. (laughs) And it was the longest 60 seconds of silence. I'm just waiting to be rejected. And then she finally says, well, I've been feeling the same way about you, but didn't think you were interested in me. (laughs) Oh, she makes you wait a whole minute. Oh, Yes, agonizing. I love it. (laughs) And then you said... For years, I pointed you out as an excellent option for a wife, for someone in ministry. Why don't we just jump right into this thing? Uh, Well, it was a very long story. Uh, She was very cautious, as was I. She was 18, so we had a long courtship. Very cautious, very plutonic. I'd drawn a pretty strong line. I thought, man, next time with a girl, I just want to get it right. So I had this crazy notion. I told her that when I was ready to marry her, I'd kiss her. So I didn't kiss her for two and a half years, which meant my mouth was occupied with a lot of conversation and we had to build a deep level of friendship before we got to the stage of heading into a marriage. So it was a bit sort of stiff and awkward to start with, but yeah, it served us well just physically. Uh, it's, yeah, I love it. I love hearing the the ways that you are learning to walk in these new identities of what's the kind of man I want to be? What's the kind of relationship mm. I want to have? Um, what does that look yeah, like in all, sure. all these different areas, right? Like, yep, yep. That's really good. 
Okay, so we, we've, we've heard like bits and pieces of the story. And I'm kind of led to feel like, I don't know, somehow this sort of happened and, you, and you, one thing led to the next. Were there ever like moments that you now would want to go back to the younger Brett and say a piece of advice or a piece of encouragement or like, you know, stay this course or, hey, I know you think that going and being a missionary abroad is really the real deal, but it's been here the whole time. Like, were there, are there some moments in your story that looking back now you'd go, you know, that was, I would offer, or I would say, or I would encourage some, mm. something. Yeah. Good, good question. Because I was in frontline peak leadership since I was 18, then national director at age 23, then international director when I was 40, there's never been anyone ahead of me. And so my entire life, I've never really had a mentor. Like I said, I don't come from a Christian family. So even for my own dad, I didn't value so much his direction. And he had no idea of just how to advise me in this kind of world as a Christian and in ministry and stuff. So I didn't feel much of that. It was a lot of um, really fast growing up I had to do. So uh, looking back, I wish I had have had an older me to um, speak into that. So certainly a couple of things for sure. One of my life verses is Ephesians 2.10 after we're told that um, we're not saved by good works, but then he says, you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for a life of good works. He's prepared in advance for you to do. I I wish someone had just assured me and validated that. Um, The whole surfing thing, is this really – the good work God's prepared. Is this how I've been shaped? Whereas now I'm so confident to say that God shaped me as a surfer. That is part of his calling and that is valid and it's right and it's good. I was plagued with a lot of uncertainty from other people in the church or even sometimes other people in surfing. Like how can you combine those two worlds? So that would have been good. On the whole relationship level, I wish I had had someone speak into my life as a young husband as a young father i didn't have that and just people giving you the insights of uh, what does it mean to really get that whole balance right making sure that you extravagantly love your wife and uh, getting the whole drivenness of work and ministry in order i certainly wish i had have had that And just as a man, not having had much role modeling and identification, there was a lot of insecurity. Uh, And I hid behind lots of administration and and working at a distance. I didn't have the confidence of articulating vision the way I do now. I wish I had had someone just encourage you to step up, to engage in. This is a, a great battle here that you need to rally people around. I often was way too passive and didn't have the confidence to to rally people quite the same way that I'm more confident now. So there's there's a few things that stand out. That's so good. I think it resonates because we just had an event here in Colorado and a chance to connect with a bunch of young guys. And I hear that from most of them, you know, who has – the number of mentors they would like. I mean, one makes you rich and one that's very specific to your life would be extraordinary. But I wonder, 
what advice you would give or what you would recommend to, to a young guy who's listening and going, that's me. I don't have anyone speaking into my life as a Christian, whatever, trying to walk this out. What kinds of practices or what would you recommend to a young guy who doesn't actually have a mentor available? Yes, I think everyone must have a mentor available. They're there. It's a matter of, you know, do you really want to take that risk? You really want to find them? I think we're at a unique stage of history. I've been saying to many of my peers, uh, I belong to probably the first generation in Australia's history that probably has the capacity to be a male mentor. And it may be similar in the United States. My father was raised by a generation from the post-war, post-depression era. And it was a really wounded generation, uh, a generation that probably wasn't as emotionally connected. The roles of men and women were so defined. And I remember, honestly, guys, I remember as a young dad, I was 30 years old, had my first child, got my mortgage, got all these pressures. We're at a church working bee. And I, I say to two of the elders in the church, you got any advice for a young guy just starting out as a new dad and, and husband and, and everything in life? Fred looked at Harry and Harry looked at Fred. They put their paintbrushes down and these men were in their, their sort of late 60s, early 70s. There was a long pause and finally Fred says, I think it's a shame you don't sing the old hymns like we used to. That's it. That's it. it. My heart, my heart just died. Initially, I was just angry. I was, I was pissed off. Going, you have got to be kidding me. And then it was replaced with a bit more sympathy. Going, you know, it's not that you won't give me advice. You can't. You come from a generation where you don't have even the capacity and the self-awareness and everything else from that generation. So I, I went a bit easier on the guys. But I vowed I would never, ever do that to a young man if I ever had the chance. And I've had lots of chances now. But I think this is a very special generation. And if there's young guys listening to this who are in their 20s and 30s, they're there. Perhaps for the first time in our Western world, they're there. And most of the older guys, many of them don't even realize they have something to offer. And... uh, you know, constantly the world is just talking of its allure of youth and the younger. But uh, there's a deep desire for um, older, wiser, just honest men. Don't have to give all the right answers, but give the real answers and get alongside. So they're there. And I'd say go and seek them out, persevere, because a lot of guys think, oh, I can't be a mentor. What do I got to offer? You know, but they're there. Definitely worth it. So, so, so good. I actually want to have us end there. Brett, thank you for for spending some time with us today. It's been great to hear some of your story and looking forward to meeting you in person when you're out here. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're looking forward to getting over there to Colorado in November. It'll be fantastic. And I'll be speaking at the Snowboarders and Skiers for Christ conference. It's definitely out of my comfort zone, but... uh, Yeah, the new season, right? Uh, for anybody who's listening, who's like, Hey, this is, this sounds like something that I could totally plug into, um, whether it's the, the surfers or this new, just, um, you know, outdoor guy or gal who wants to get plugged in, where's a good place for them to go to find out some more. Well, look, if you went to action sports, 
com or dot org, uh, you will find a directory of similar uh, missions. Or just do a search. You're a snowboard. Just type in Christian snowboarders. Type in Christian surfers. Type in Christian rock climbers. Christian mountain bikers. And if you'd like to contact myself personally, just the uh, Christian Surfers International website. You can catch us there as well. But there are a growing proliferation of amazing um, ministries that are there to encourage people to combine their passion with God's purpose in the action sports arena and really make a difference for Christ in that. So go for that. It's awesome. Thanks so much, Brett. Yeah, no worries, Blaine. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast today, guys. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we hope that you might send this along to someone in your world. I'm not asking for a five-star rating or a review. Rather, that if something about this podcast struck you, that you might pass this off to somebody that you think would really enjoy it. Looking for more? Good news. There is a new issue of Anson's Magazine. If you're listening to this after October 10th, if it's before October 10th, you can just wait. And there's always the chance we might be late. Sometimes we send you guys over to social media to keep up with us, but so little really happens on social media now. That's kind of a moot point. And make sure you keep your eyes peeled for our films rolling out in the fall. See you guys next week.